I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Erioki. Join me and my friends as we explore the darker side of the Sooner State. Okay, so have you ever thought, like, in any given day, like, how many times you might have crossed paths with someone who just killed someone else? That is not where I thought you were going with that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have thought about whether or not I've run into somebody who's murdered somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. It's real weird because everyone seems normal for the most part. But... Yeah, I could have passed by somebody on the way here. Right. Just killed somebody or just got done killing somebody. Or had someone in their trunk. Yeah. Yeah. That's like on their way to like dispose of it. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. Like the I I got that question in my head because I heard a cop speak at a writer's meeting one time and she was telling about a guy like dropping a body off in Norman. But yeah, it like totally, totally stayed with me. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one that. No. Think about how many bodies are in lakes and buried in fields. Yeah. Where are all these murderers at? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to talk about one of them tonight. good. Yeah. So welcome to Erioki. I'm Marnie Vinge, and I'm here today with uh, Jay Sheldon. Jay is a friend of mine. We go way back, all the way back to seventh grade, and I'll let him introduce himself and tell you what he's been up to. Oh, yeah. Let me... You want like life story? Do you want whatever you want to tell? Okay. Well, I'm currently working in advertising in Oklahoma City. I have my own podcast that Marnie was on. Yes. Called Miscellaneous Important Stuff. And it's about miscellaneous stuff. Um I've made That's important. That is important. Yeah. Yeah. Um made short films for a lot of years. I have a lot of hobbies. Um I like to talk about murder. Mm-hmm. Um which is what brought you here tonight. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Do you want to have a conversation about murder? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a podcast that I could? <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. That's exactly how this happened. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk about um, Roger Dale Stafford, who killed six, I believe it was six people at the Sirloin Stockade on I-240 back in 1978. So mm. here we go. So in June, June 22nd of 1978, Air Force Sergeant Melvin Lawrence, 38, and his wife, who was also a sergeant, which I thought was kind of a cool detail about her since she was female and it was the 70s, um, Linda Lawrence, who was 31, along with their son Richard, who was 13, were headed north from San Antonio to attend Melvin Lawrence's mother's funeral. Um, they were passing through Purcell, and they spotted a woman alone sitting in her car with the hood up, and being good Samaritans, they stopped. Like you do. First mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think today, like, just because of this case, I think that people would be more skeptical about stopping. And also because I think that people have cell phones and you'd think that somebody could call and get their own help. Yeah. Kind of a thing. dark road, middle of the night. I'm sorry, I'm not stopping. <laughs> no, I'm not stopping for anybody. Like, it doesn't matter who's standing beside that car. <laughs> I'll wish you the best. Exactly. Like, you're on your own. You're on You're on your own. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not that brave. Right. And so they, they stopped, and Melvin got out of their car, and he went to help. And when he did, Roger 
and his brother, who were out of sight, approached, and Roger demanded his wallet, and he wouldn't give it to him. Roger was upset with him, and Roger shot him. That's a direct quote from Verna Stafford. That's what she testified. Um, So they were hiding out of sight. Like, this was this whole thing that was actually Verna's idea, like, was to have her pose as a helpless woman on the side of the highway and then have her husband and his brother, like, come and take the money from the people who were helping them. So I don't know if she thought this would end in murder, but it did. And after that, Linda Lawrence, like, jumped out of the car. She was freaking out. Um, She tried to attack Verna, and Verna fought back. She said, quote, I caught her on the side of the face, and she lost balance, and then Roger shot her, too. What a maniac. (laughs) Yeah. So he, yeah. And they then heard a small voice, which turned out to be the Lawrence's 13-year-old son, Richard, in the camper atop the Lawrence's pickup truck. Which, I don't know if he, what he was doing up there, like, if he got scared and he got up in there. But they heard him and Roger, there was a, um, an inmate that ended up testifying against him. Or, like, testifying as a, I don't know exactly what that would be. But, um, he got some kind of deal out of it for his sentencing. And he said that Roger said it didn't matter if a victim was 2 or 82, I believe. He didn't care. Like, it didn't... It didn't matter to him, so he actually shot this kid, too. That's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah. Do you think, if it was you, or actually, do you think if he gave up his wallet, if it would, do you think it would have ended differently? You know what? I don't know. Because I've done a lot of thinking about that because of what ended up happening at the Sirloin Stockade. Like, when um, the, we'll get into that, like, about what the manager said to him and kind of whether or not that, like, spurred him on. Yeah. But I don't know. I kind of feel like this guy like had it in him to kill somebody like he's very he seems like a psychopath yeah like a lot of the things he does are very narcissistic psychopath like and so i don't know i think that he i think maybe he knew that they were going to kill these people yeah i thought about that recently you'll see videos of like robberies and stuff yeah. like that and i'm like i wonder what i would do yeah everyone's like if it was me right i would shoot that robber yeah i'm not giving up i don't know i i think i'd probably just be like yeah take what you want i think i think i would too because like it's really easy it's really easy to like sit here and be like oh i'd totally be a hero like yeah. i would totally like f- like fight back and all that make all the right tactical moves exactly and, <laughs> like, like i'd probably be scared i think i think i would be terrified because like we've talked about like one of my biggest fears is being somewhere where a like a gunman comes in mm-hmm and I, like, there was one time during my last semester at UCO where I was in um, my forensics class, which was in a huge auditorium that had two double doorways that opened up um, around, like, it was, I'm trying to show Jay and you guys can't see this, <laughs> but, like, they, they kind of, these two entrances led in to hallways that then turned and went into the auditorium. And... So it always freaked me out that those doors were left open during class. It always freaked me out. It was always on my mind. And there was one time during class when uh, this guy who I did not recognize came walking in and he was acting really weird. Turned out he was just like tech support and he was just like going to fix like something that had to do with but the projector. In your mind. Oh, in my mind, he was about to shoot the school up. Like I was... I was like grabbing, like I, I was grabbing the desk. Like I was, I, I was ready to die. Basically. I was like, this is it. 
And I, so I don't know, like, I think when people have that amazing presence of mind in a crisis, it's just incredible. Like, I don't know how that happens. Yeah. But it just kind of, I think some kind of like autopilot just takes over and they just like do it one, two, three, four. Like, this is what I've got to do to get out of this to survive. So. Yeah. Can that be learned? Maybe I need to learn that. Yeah. I, I think I need to learn that too. <laughs> That would be a good skill to have. I wonder I didn't if I learned could... that in Boy Scouts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I think that would be something I could put on my LinkedIn profile. Like I know what I does well in like <laughs> disaster situations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, which I have been told that I'm I'm good in a crisis, but it's not something that I like to practice. No, like how do you even learn that? You right. Know, I mean, a lot of yeah crises i think so i think so i think that's how that's that's how i learned it (laughs) lots of crises um okay so after um after they killed this family they dumped the bodies of the two adults in a field just beside the road and then they drove richard's body a little ways up the road before dumping him in a similar fashion which i thought was kind of weird like it made it somehow better or they didn't want the kid connected to it like it it's just this weird logic that roger dale stafford had going on it's kind of strange yeah but it seems like he probably had some yeah. in his mind right, right? like this made logical. sense somehow yeah um and then so harold and roger followed verna in melvin lawrence's pickup truck they took his pickup truck they followed her to will rogers airport they left the truck there, but before they did that, they stopped and had a bite to eat. Of course. Like, and I love the article that was talking about this because it said they stopped and had a bite to eat. Like, Sounds so casual. It does. It, it definitely does not sound like something you would do right after a murder, but like this guy is a cold-blooded killer. Did it say what he what they ate? Did not. Oh. Did not say what they ate. Huh. I'm just curious. I wonder like... If it would match up with what I have in my head. Right. I'm thinking like steak, burgers, maybe. Yeah. That's like a little like greasy spoon diner type yeah. place. I don't see him as like organic, vegan. No. Having a salad. Right. With a water. You got it. That's not a post-murder meal. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Need some meat. Yeah, exactly. Um, So so like I said before, Verna said, said it was her idea to put on the stranded motorist ploy. Um, and the reason that they did that was because they needed money to pay their rent in Tulsa while Harold, Roger's brother, needed some cash to pay for a girlfriend's abortion. So this um, this event took place right before the Sirloin Stockade murders, which um, the Sirloin Stockade was located on I-240 in Penn, where, um, do you know where Gro- Joe's grows? Joe's Crab Shack and Starbucks are right oh, there. Yeah. Okay. That's where this was. Um, which is where I worked my first semester of college was at that Starbucks. And um, I am very glad that I did not know that that was that location, which I don't know how I didn't know it because my aunt kind of has this weird connection to the sirloin stockade situation. Um, the night that it happened, um, which was July 16th, 1978, she was with a friend at the movies They'd gone to church and then they'd gone to eat somewhere up in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And then they they were going to go. They went to the movies. And after that, they were going to um, see what one of her friends was doing, which was Terry Horst, who was one of the victims. And wow. for whatever reason, my aunt said that she just kind of 
They drove by Sirloin Stockade right around 10 o'clock and something, she was just like, you know what? Let's, let's not bother. Let's not bother with it. Let's just go home. Wow. Yeah. So it was, I mean, wild. Like. Yeah. Cause is that just coincidence? Right. Is that meant to happen? Like, Yeah. It's really, it's, it's really weird. And like, um, and I, I always like hesitate on the whole like meant to happen thing Mm -hmm. because I always feel like. Like, it's like when people say, like, everything happens for a reason. I'm like, well, really? Everything? I know I hate that, too. Cause yeah. I'm like, well, we have choices and we are. Exactly. And it's like, so you're saying that, like, this bad stuff, like, happened for a reason. Like, what was the reason? Like, yeah. I'm a bad person. Uh, we don't know yet, but yeah. we'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. So, so some kind of weird intuition or, like, something came over her and she was like, you know what? Let's just go home. And um, so they did. But... The Sirloin Stockade, which uh, is, it was a restaurant. It was like an all-you-can-eat buffet type restaurant, which my mom has described it to me kind of like Western Sizzlin. Oh, okay. Which like is also in, over in that area, isn't it? It's, uh, well, I yeah, I think it, it is. is. I think it is. Yeah. Because I remember one time um, my mom said something about Sirloin Stockade when we were up there. And I was like, Western Sizzlin? She's like, no, it was kind of like that. But people got murdered there. <laughs> like, So I was like, okay. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so... Um, let's see, where are we at? Okay, so the Staffords decided that they would again commit robbery. And this was July of 1978. Um, they'd gotten away with what they had done to the Lawrence family. And for whatever reason, they were in Tulsa, but they chose, they chose the Sirloin Stockade on 74th in Oklahoma City, which is what 240 used to be known as. They drove from Tulsa and parked, waited in the parking lot. And they watched the customers empty out of the building. At 10 p.m., the two men went to the side door. The manager answered, and they held him at gunpoint, demanding to be taken to the cash register and the office safe. And then this is this is the part that I was talking about earlier. The manager did something then that potentially shaped the way events unfolded. He taunted the Staffords. He asked them why people rob others instead of working for their own money. And angered, Roger demanded that he call his employees to the cash register. And this is where it goes from just being a robbery at gunpoint to I think that something flipped in his mind and he was like, okay, like you're all going to die now. Yeah. Like I, I, I really think that he made a choice right then. You push me over the edge. Yeah. Don't disrespect me like that. Like, which is totally a like psycho kind of narcissistic thought. Yeah. Like, it's very, wow. I mean, like, I, I don't like being disrespected, but I wouldn't kill somebody over it. But then again, no. I wouldn't I wouldn't rob someone. Um, it's funny because also the manager and every employee is really being disrespected by you coming into their business. Yeah, with a gun, demanding yeah. their money. Like, like, that's really disrespectful. Right, exactly. There's There's always, like, this weird disconnect with people who do these kind of things. Like, and there's this weird logic yeah. that kind of follows they it. They don't see their own wrongdoing. It's just... Yeah. Oh, you people. You people. There's a code. Like yeah. it's like when they say like honor among thieves kind of yeah. kind of a thing. Um but yeah. So while Harold and Verna held them at gunpoint, Roger got the manager to enter empty about thirteen hundred dollars from the safe. It was twelve twelve hundred and ninety dollars. He then ordered everyone into the freezer. Verna would later Verna would later testify that Harold reminded Roger then that no one needed to get hurt. But Roger replied, They'll get what they deserve. 
Damn. Yeah. He then shot um, the janitor, who was Isaac Freeman. And then both of the men, Harold and Roger, opened fire on the rest of them. Then before it was over, Roger handed the gun to Verna and told her that it was time for her to take part. He wanted her to get her hands dirty, too. He didn't want her to be able to say, I didn't want any part of this. Like, I didn't think people were going to die. That kind of thing. Um, and he helped her pull the trigger. In all, six people died. Isaac Freeman, the manager, Louis Zacharias, and four teenage employees. David Salzman, Anthony Two, David Lindsay, and my aunt's friend, Terry Horst. Wow. Yeah. So this, I mean, if you can imagine, like, imagine something like that happening when we were in high school, like at Western Sizzlin and more, like. Lost my mind. Yeah. That, and especially like, this is at a time when, like, Columbine had not happened and the. um, Oh, that's right. Like, Columbine had not happened. The movie theater shooting had not happened. That was not something that was in the news all the time and happening all the time and um i just remember when columbine happened that was like like how is this possible right yeah it was like something something you considered when going to school Mm -hmm. i can remember it was the first time that i realized i wasn't safe at school Mm -hmm. and it was a very like it was a weird feeling it was kind of it was kind of like 9-11 where i i realized that i was not safe in my country was how I felt like in I was, life, really. In life, really, yeah. Like anywhere you go, like you're not safe at the airport. You're not safe on an airplane. Yeah. Like stay home. It was kind of like this feel. Yeah, exactly. It was where, which is where my agoraphobia developed from. <laughs> not really, but, um, but yeah. Uh, so it's I can't even imagine being. Well, like living there and hearing about it, I'm sure it must have been, or or if you had eaten there and that was a normal place for you, right? Like the idea of people dying in there. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very strange. But in defense of that manager, I think, haven't we all had days where you're like, if anybody messes with me today, I am not going to take it. Oh, like, yeah. Maybe he was just having one of those days. He just had it up to here. Yeah. He like, just been there all day, right? Like, yeah. At the restaurant. Right. He's getting ready to close. He's getting ready to go home to his family. Yeah. And then this jerk shows up and is like, give me all your money. Like, I, I can see how somebody would have an attitude. I've... Imagine that exact scenario. Really? Thought, what if somebody tried to rob me right now when I'm having a really bad day? I think <laughs> I'm not going to allow it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of like maybe that's how those people who are in those like high stress situations that end up doing all the right things. Like maybe they're having a terrible yeah, day. Like not today. Not today. Like they they just it, they just go into autopilot and they're like, you know what? I don't care. Like, yeah, this might be it, but not today. But I am that done with this day. Yeah, I'm willing to risk everything <laughs> exactly yeah and i think i i could totally like i get why he would be like pissed off that these guys were doing that and and i think that's also probably like going back to it being that time period i don't think he thought in his wildest dreams that that guy was actually going to shoot anyone no and i think there are a lot of people who rob and like threaten to kill right. or hurt and they're like well you're not really going to right but you don't ever know yeah exactly and i think today we're much more cautious about mm-hmm. those kind of situations because people are crazy yeah that's like, very true they're insane and so we're very like like i remember when i worked at the bank um there was this one customer that was a regular and when i very first started i had just gone through robbery training 
And never heard of robbery training. (laughs) Yeah, I had just gone through robbery training, which I don't remember a whole lot of it. But I remember that you push the panic button and just kind of like try to do whatever they tell you and don't be a hero basically is like what they what they were saying because there was there was an event um and i can't remember if it happened at the bank that i worked at not like the actual branch but like that company um in tulsa where a pregnant woman was shot because she couldn't open the vault (sighs) because there's like a timer on it and you can't get into it like you can only get into it during certain time windows and the robber did not believe her and so shot her and killed her. They probably do that to save lives. Right, exactly. Right? Which is the weird the weird part about it. And I had just gone through this whole thing, like learning all about this. And, and there was this guy. I did not know he was a regular at the time. But um, I was up front with one of the other girls and our manager and one of the personal banking representatives. And when he walked in, I didn't notice it at the time. But they all went to the back. And so I'm up there by myself with this guy. And he walks in. And he comes up to me and he's like, first thing he says to me, he's got sunglasses on and he's got this coat that kind of doesn't match with the weather outside. And the first thing he says is, turn that frown upside down, Charlie Brown. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. (laughs) Sounds like a cool robbery line. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, and then he goes, uh, he goes, give me a piece of paper, not a deposit slip, not a withdrawal slip, a piece of paper. And I'm like, this is how it happens. Like, I'm like, I'm yeah. about to be robbed. And he's got his hand in his pocket and he's acting really squirrely. And I say, would you like a deposit slip? And he goes, no, a piece of paper and a pen. And I'm like, okay, oh my God, this guy's about to rob me. So I'm looking around for like the other employees and they're all, they've all abandoned me. And um, that sound you hear in the background is Oscar tap dancing, doing his little thing getting his guest spot on the podcast saying hello yep um so he like uh gets me to give him this this piece of paper and he starts writing and he hands it to me it's his social security number he wanted me to use it to look up his account but like he couldn't tell me that and so i'm like my hand is on the button like i am ready. ready i'm ready like i'm like i'm about to be robbed i may be murdered like it's going down and then I find out, like, afterwards that everybody, like, left because they think he's a creep. And so they just wanted to leave him with the new girl. And... Yeah, this is like prank the new girl. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I'm like, thanks, guys. But... So I can imagine, like, if I had had a really rough day and I'd been experienced there and somebody came in and was, like, giving me a hard time yeah, and I was just it. at my breaking point, yeah, I might get a little mouthy. <laughs> Yeah, like, almost where you're like, please, just, please mess with me today. Yeah, just exactly. Somebody say something because I'm ready. Exactly. Yeah, that I could, I could totally see that. So that's just, I, I can't even imagine that no. kind of a thing happening. Like, and and it happened right here in Oklahoma. It's scary. It is scary. So after the crime, there were two witnesses, and um, one of them was another motorist. Um, who Roger Dale Stafford almost hit while fleeing the scene of the crime because I guess he was driving a little erratically after he just killed six people and stacked them up in a freezer. Mm. Yeah. So um, he almost hit this guy and the guy identified his um, green station wagon. And then the other one was a boyfriend of one of the victims who I believe it was actually Terry's boyfriend. And he saw the vehicle before they left and he was able to give them that tip. Um, 
And then during the week after the Staffords committed their crime, this is like the biggest piece of karma of this whole case. During the week, like just right after they did this, Harold was killed in a motorcycle accident, (laughs) which I think is great. (laughs) Yeah. Like, well. Yeah. Everything works out, right? Yeah, exactly. Everything happens for a reason, (laughs) Harold. (laughs) Everything. I mean, it was bound to happen eventually. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So a woman who visited Harold in the funeral home was traced to Arkansas. And when she was questioned, she pointed them towards Chicago and Verna was arrested. Um. And one of the one of the people I meant to go into this a little earlier, one of the people, Sergeant Lanny Mitchell, who was the first police officer on the scene, a direct quote about what he saw was, I opened the freezer door and all I could see was blood and brains. It was totally incomprehensible. Yeah, that'll mess with you forever. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Like, oh, I I don't know how cops see what they see and maintain any amount of normalcy in their everyday lives. You, I think you have to be just different you have to yeah. be made for that oh yeah i think so i went to a something the omniplex it was like an adult night where there's mm-hmm. beer and like people on a panel and there was one guy like he was a forensic investigator or something and he just had slides of dead bodies and he's just talking very casually about yeah. it like what a murder looks like versus just natural death and he seemed to love it when I was in that forensics class, we had a uh, profiler come and do a presentation. And that was fascinating because, I mean, he had, like, I am a complete ghoul. And so I not enjoy, but I am fascinated by crime scene photos and things like that. And um, he had a bunch of that, a bunch of serial killing photos, which had like ritualistic elements to them. Like um, the guy carved things on the people's backs and like left messages for the press on the people's backs, like carved it. And, um, I mean, he, he said in that presentation, he was like, you see a side of humanity when you do this job that you can't unsee. Like he was like, you don't look at people the same anymore. Cause you know what they're capable of. Right. Yeah. Cause you know that like there's that darkness in all of us and the, this selection of the population has just chosen to act on it. Mm hmm. And that is, I was listening to a podcast on the way home today and I was thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, people who have those dark thoughts and dark fantasies, the only thing that separates them from these people is the choice to act on it. Oh yeah. And like, I think we've all had dark thoughts and like, you know, like just the thought passes through your head. Like I could do that. Like that I'm like not capable in terms of like morally capable, but like physically yeah, like it wouldn't be hard right. right now. Like you could kill me right now. Exactly. Like you're yeah. Capable. Exactly. Like I'm physically capable of that, and it's very, it's a weird place that you get into in your head when you start going down that path of like, what am I capable of? And yeah. it's just, and what's keeping me from doing it? Exactly. Like what is what is what is keeping me from making these choices? Mm-hmm. If I act on every thought I ever had, I wouldn't. I'd be in jail. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> same. 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 <laughs> And I think anyone who tells you differently is lying. They're a liar. <laughs> they They're are boring. A... I don't want to talk to them. Yeah, yet. exactly. I would way rather talk to people that with that that life experience. Yeah, let's be honest. We've all had real bad thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's a whole thing, like intrusive thoughts, like mm-hmm. you know. So um so the crime spree 
was described as the worst in Oklahoma history by an Oklahoma judge. Um, and an Oklahoma crime bureau agent, Arthur Linville called the Lawrence killing, um, which I don't know if he had what he had to do with the, um, Sterling stockade murders, but I think this kind of almost goes hand in hand. He called it a joy killing. And, um, he said they could have gotten more from selling drugs or stealing cars. Linville added that the victims were doing exactly as they were told before the robbers herded them into the freezer and shot them to death. So I think he very much enjoyed this. Like he, this was a power move. Like you disrespected me. I'm going to show you what happens. Mm -hmm. Like kind of, kind of a thing. I wonder what his childhood was like. Yeah. I would like to know that. I didn't find a lot about his past or anything like that. But I would like to know that. There's got to be something there. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's probably much more than what I was able to scratch the surface of. That, that would make me feel better. If he had a bad childhood. Yeah, and well, if he was like, perfect childhood. Yeah. He was raised really well. He just chose this. And then he's like, I don't know. Let's murder. Yeah, let's murder. Okay, so January 2nd, 1979, the police released three composite sketches of the suspects. And this is where I think his, like psycho psychopathy or narcissism is like on full display which it's also on full display later which we'll get into but he got drunk and he anonymously called the oklahoma state bureau of investigation and said that he recognized two of the composite sketches verna and harold but not the other he claimed that he had partied with both of them in tulsa so needless to say they were able to trace him to chicago like they're not they're not complete dummies like they were like oh really like you yeah you partied with them you know you recognize two of them but not the other guy yeah, like, oh, yeah. that's weird okay and you're in chicago which is where we arrested your wife like mm. hmm. you're legit yeah so march 13th 1979 he was arrested in the ymca lobby in chicago and was transferred back to oklahoma city the next day where in august he was ordered to stand trial for the murders and in the trial, Verna ended up testifying against Roger, um, and she divorced him while he was on death row, which, I mean, I don't blame her, but at the same time, like, she's pretty awful herself. Yeah, like, did that make her feel better? <laughs> right, yeah, she's like, she's like, well, this is, this is where I draw the line. Um, I could never be with a man who's just as bad as me. <laughs> yeah, I could never be with someone on death row, yeah. just like free murderers. <laughs> Yeah, so she ended up being sentenced to two life terms for her involvement in the murders, and a, jo a judge told her on August 7th, 1989, in a resentencing hearing, um, there's one of the hottest corners in hell vacant with your name right above it. And he was the one who sentenced her to two consecutive life terms. Wow. Um, Roger married again twice while waiting to be executed. And twice? Yeah, two... Okay, so, like, I do not understand women who want to marry serial killers or spree killers oh. or any kind of killer that's, like, in prison. It's like a weird fantasy, right? It's got to be. I, I think I think it must be. Um, because, like, I, um, I was on one of those dating apps, and every once in a while you come across a prisoner. Because, like, they've got some homie on the outside that's, like, oh, that's hooking so them up or, like, they're on some kind of pen pal website where they're, like pulling their pictures and putting them on these so dating. interesting it's very interesting it's fascinating and i would i would love to talk to someone who like fell in love with a prisoner 
Like that would be truly fell in love. Truly fell in love. Like if you are out there and you're listening to this, I am like, send me an email. I would love to hear that story. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, I I would love to understand because I I think it's it's really hard for me to imagine knowing that someone is capable of killing nine pe- at least nine people in cold blood and then just being like I think I'll marry you because there's not any like financial gain that you're getting out of it. Yeah. This person's in prison. They have no assets. But was he also very charismatic? I mean, it was in a time where you couldn't just look him up on Facebook. So maybe he was able to just say, no, I mean, I'm falsely accused. Yeah. Just tell a good story. Right. Maybe so. I mean, it does seem kind of charismatic that he decided he was going to call and say, I know two of those people, but not the other one. Yeah. Like so much confidence. Very much confidence. Yeah. And one of the things that he said um, was... He believed that he would not be executed. He didn't think it would ever happen because he was, quote, too good looking. Mm. And we all know they don't they don't execute good looking prisoners. That's right. That's right. Good looking like that good looking guy, the hot fellow. Oh, yes. Which <laughs> we find out what he did. Yes. He went on to become a model. That's right. But what was his crime? Oh, um, it wasn't anything. It wasn't murder. No, it wasn't murder. Um, I think it was drug related, maybe. Or like some kind of petty theft yeah, or something. But his photo went viral. Yeah, it did. He, he had those piercing eyes and yeah. just like looked better than anybody should look in a mugshot to begin with. Like he was good looking. He was but ready for the mugshot. He was ready for that mugshot. <laughs> like sometimes you see people's mugshots and you're like, you have obviously just had a really rough night yeah. and you look like it's been rough and maybe like every night before that was also <laughs> rough. But like sometimes you see people that just like, look like they've been waiting their entire life for this moment yes and he, they're he like went out that night hoping to be arrested yeah and you're like maybe tonight's the night <laughs> or he took one for a friend like don't arrest them yeah exactly arrest me it was me <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i did it officer right so um on October 17th, 1979 Roger Dale Stafford was convicted of murder and was sentenced to death um Later on, March 7th, 1980, he he was convicted in the Lawrence killings and sentenced to death again. Um, I believe that he actually got nine total sentencings or something like that for the nine people that they know of that died. Um, And he was scheduled to be executed for the Lawrence killings on April 2nd, 1984, 15 hours before the execution. He won a delay from the U.S. Supreme Court. So... He got a little bit of extra time. And then finally, I don't know. I didn't, I I didn't look into that. I should have looked into that, but, um, I don't know why they do that. Like why, why you get a stay of execution. I don't know exactly what that process. I feel like it's gotta be harder now. Although executions even now, it takes forever. Well, and also like Oklahoma kind of pumped the brakes, like after those two guys. Yeah. The botched executions. I have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, especially as they get older, I think I'd, I don't like the idea of execution. Right. Because there's so many people falsely convicted. Yeah, I think it... Yeah, I agree. I think it's... um, Yeah, the older I get, the more I'm like... Just... If someone's really, truly did, like, something really awful, just let them rot in jail. Yeah, do we really get anything out of killing them anyway? Right. Like, let them be miserable. Yeah. Let them live a miserable life knowing that they'll never get out. To me, that sounds worse. That sounds way worse. I'd I I rather die if I was in prison. Yeah, oh yeah. 
Like, especially if you knew that there was no chance that you were ever getting out, especially if you were young, Mm -hmm. like, and you'd done something horrible, like you're in your twenties, thirties, and you've got like 40, 50, maybe 60 years ahead of you. Like, but prison's its own world too. People figure out how to make that work. That is so true. They want, they live like this cushy life. Yeah, that is so true. And like, um, that reminds me of like in the Shawshank Redemption when that one guy gets out of prison and yes. he can't find work and he kills himself and it's yeah. so sad. He like ends up missing that life and yeah. his friends and his, yeah. I mean, and you hear it. about people all the time who like um, the recidivism rate. Like they they commit another crime to go mm-hmm. back to prison because that's the only world they know. And they don't really rehabilitate rehabilitate you no. to go out of the world. Oh, there's so many problems with the prison system in the United States. It's like. That could be a whole episode of its own. It could be a whole eight hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it could. (laughs) So, finally, um, on May 30th, 1995, he gets notification that he will be executed in 30 days. He is advised to make arrangements. So, like, this, this really intrigues me because I'm like... I did not know that they, like, come to you 30 days before you're going to be executed. And they're like, okay, you got 30 days. Would you rather them come to you day of, though? Today's the day. I don't know. I think that might be worse. I don't know. Maybe day before? Maybe, like... No, because you need... You need time to prepare for that. To, like, prepare for the fact that you're going to (laughs) die. Yeah, exactly. Like, you need... And, I like... Because I know that in... um, I think maybe in, like, China or somewhere... They don't tell you. They just come get you. Like when it's oh. when it's time. And anytime like, you heard footsteps, you think, is this blood day? Which which I almost like kind of feel like if we're are if we are gonna go all in on the death penalty and these people are that awful. Like, I mean, that's the way to really punish someone that's is like true. if they're if they every time they hear footsteps, they don't know if it's gonna be them. It's true. Like, so I can kind of see the logic behind it. Um but I mean, I guess they, they were like, okay, you got 30 days, get your affairs in order, which I don't know like what all he would have to get in order. But, um, <coughs> then, um, so July 1st rolls around and he is executed by the state of Oklahoma by means of lethal injection. And as the chemicals poured into his veins, he said, Oh God, among his last words were tell the world you are seeing an innocent man murdered. I've got nothing to lose by telling a lie. Someone, somewhere, somehow, please exonerate me. He also said to his wife, Mickey, I love you. Mickey, you meet me at Heaven's Gate. What a weird man. Yeah. Like, what a jerk to be, like, saying, right, like, saying that he did not do this to the very last moment. Yeah. Where is the thinking in that? Right. And, like, also, it indicates that he feels like he did nothing wrong. That's true. Like he doesn't feel any kind of guilt, remorse. Or maybe he doesn't even have the memory of doing it. Maybe, maybe he not. blocked that out. Maybe he did. <laughs> so Mickey proclaimed her love for Roger during his execution. She repeatedly told him she loved him during the eight minutes that it took to end his life. Hallelujah, you're going to meet the Lord today, um, is what she said as he finally went limp. And this is one of the creepiest things about this case um less than two weeks after roger's execution the assistant attorney general sandy howard received in the mail a sirloin stockade gift card (laughs) for the amount of five dollars it was from roger inside it read hey you got away with it i am murder and you help do it 
which that's kind of grammatically incorrect. But then it said, I am innocent and you know it. And it was signed Roger Dale Stafford with his inmate number. It came from the Sirloin Stockade in El Reno and had been mailed on July 3rd, two days after the execution from the prison in McAllister. So I guess that was the affair he needed to get in order before, like, he died. He needed to have one of his buddies in prison. He was like, hey, you got to hook me up. You got to send this to the assistant attorney general after I die. Really creep him out. Like, I think that would be, that would be kind of, that would be a little, um, like, disconcerting to get a gift card from a serial spree killer type person that is dead now that's dead like just it's just like one more little jab to be like the jokes on you kind of a thing and stuff like that that would make me go i don't need this job yeah exactly (laughs) oh i think i think there are so many jobs that are in like the criminal justice system like from law enforcement to like defense attorneys like i don't know how you would do some of those jobs and not just absolutely lose it. Yeah, I think the the new season of Serial mm-hmm. is about the court system. Really? And I've listened to some of those episodes and thought, I don't know how they could do that yeah. every day. Yeah. Sounds terrible. I don't know how you would be a defense attorney who gets like assigned to people that you know are like cold-blooded killers. Oh, And yeah. you've got to figure out a way to present them fairly and unbiased and like be on their be in their corner kind of and you know i think that would be so hard and if you're private practice then you get to do whatever you want yeah but if you're a public defender oh Oh, yeah yeah that would i think that would be really hard and i would also like to know what would make someone want to do that Hmm. yeah i don't i don't know i've actually seen a documentary and i'm trying to think what their answer was. I think they want to help. They want right. to like, defend the innocent. Yeah. And, but it's just such a difficult job where there's not mm-hmm. enough pay. And you're, I believe most of the cases get settled. Yeah. They're pleas. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really get to do the job that maybe you thought you were signing up for. Oh, man. That's to really a, defend. That's a lot of school to go through to find out like at the end. This isn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Like here, take the deal. I got 10 more cases a day. I got to oh. get through this. Oh man. It's yeah, it's it's definitely like there are problems. Big problems. Yeah, so just don't get in trouble. Yeah. Just don't don't act on those dark thoughts that you yeah. got people. Just be good. Behave yourselves, be good. Like, yeah. So that's about it for Roger Dale Stafford. He was a monster. Man. And I feel like that case kind of changed Oklahoma in a way. I mean, it was probably the first time, it really was the first time that anything like that ever happened here. And yeah, it's like, if it's the same as if you live in this small town, this Pleasantville type town, something like that happens. Like, how can you ever be the same? Yeah, you can't, you can't. So, so yeah, that's about it. Um, Do you have any anything you want to plug like your Instagram for the podcast sure. or anything like that? The Instagram is just miscellaneous important stuff. Uh, the podcast is also miscellaneous important stuff and you can listen to it anywhere that podcasts are played or streamed. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, okay. So you guys subscribe, follow us on um, Instagram at Erie Oki 
or on Facebook at Arioki. And um, if you have any, um, let's see, what did we what did we ask for an email about? Uh, what was like, that? Um, your own story or a story you know of, like eerie. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything like that. And there was something specific in this episode. Whatever it was, you just listen to it so you know, and I don't because I have a bad memory. But email us at eerieokipodcast at gmail.com. So that's it for this episode. See you later. Bye.